Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, listeners, uh, we're delighted that you're uh, here for our uh, podcast today called uh, Voting in the Time of the Virus. And we're doing it under unusual circumstances, as you might imagine. Uh, We're all at home instead of in a studio. And so we've got some new technical uh, issues to deal with that you may hear throughout this podcast. We've got phones ringing and other bleeps and noises. But we hope and think the content is worthwhile. And as we all collectively try to manage with the unusual circumstances of the virus, we hope we get better in our next and future podcasts. And uh, we appreciate your hanging with us. And we will try to help you understand the election law rules and consequences of our new environment as best as possible. And with that, we'll get started. Hey, Fernita, good to see you. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there uh, under the circumstances. I hope you and your family are as well. Same to you. Very challenging times. It is. uh, I guess uh, this is living in the time of the virus, and I guess we're going to be talking about voting in the time of the virus. And uh, do you want to kick us off for what we have uh, to discuss today? Yes. Um, So today we are very lucky to have with us Michael Morley, who, um, besides being my co-author and friend, is also an assistant professor at Florida State University College of Law. Um, And he's an expert in election law, constitutional law, remedies, and federal courts. And and so we're uh, really, really lucky to have him on the show today because he's written about these issues. And so um, also yesterday, there was a great discussion on social media about Ohio's decision to Uh, postpone in-person voting by closing polling places uh, because of coronavirus. And so having Michael on the show gives us an opportunity to continue that conversation and think about the implications of what's going on in Ohio and other states, because um, Ohio is the fifth state to postpone postpone their primary um, following decisions by Louisiana, Kentucky, Maryland, and Georgia to also postpone. So um, I'm really looking forward to to the conversation today. Likewise. Thank you very welcome. much for having me. <laughs> yep, welcome. We, uh, we're delighted to have you and your expertise. Uh, so, absolutely. Um, so, so, first off, just to, to give our, our listeners a sense of everything that has happened, let's uh, just quickly recap um, the decision by the Ohio governor to um, close polling places, effectively postponing the election. Yeah, so maybe I'll take that as the Ohio person to start us off. Um, And although people are referring to the Ohio governor, in fact, it was the Ohio health director who made the precipitous decision that then led to the secretary of state. And I do think it's important to take this in a couple of steps. Um, And by the way, just to uh, set the stage and and frame this, I, I think it is appropriate to say that Ohio's governor and health director, Amy Acton, Acton, Dr. Amy Acton, Uh, regardless of whatever you think about the election situation, they have been very proactive with respect to the coronavirus and trying to get the state of Ohio and its hospital system to flatten the curve, to be really ahead of uh, this 
public health crisis and avoid the problems that might arise, what we've all tragically seen in Italy and elsewhere. And so I think the health-based decision that was made was made by health officials based on health evidence consistent with that overall health philosophy. And then the election had, there were electoral consequences as a result of that health decision. So that's, I think, basically the, the, the two-stage process. So the first thing that happened yesterday, I mean, there's a lot that happened, but I think of most utmost consequence, the first thing that happened was that Dr. Amy Acton, as the director of health in Ohio, made the judgment, the medical judgment, that it would be inappropriate to have in-person voting at polling places as scheduled for today, the normal election day in the primary election. And again, she did that because she was fearful both of the health of poll workers, many of them were elderly, the health of voters who would come, the need for social distancing, the new directives or, or guidance from the CDC federal health officials about uh, greater vigilance on social distancing. And then thinking also about this flattening the curve point that what happens in terms of public gathering can have an effect two weeks down the, the, the road in terms of uh, demand for hospital beds, ICU, uh, you know, intensive care unit facilities, the ventilators and so forth. So that was the health judgment. What that did was essentially divide Ohio's primary election in half because Ohio had already been voting in the primary. There had been absentee ballots already cast and there had been in-person voting already taking place over weeks of, of in-person voting. So those ballots are already cast in part of the election. But then the health decision came out that there would be no voting today, which is another component of the electoral process. And you can't have a full election with only half election. And voters reasonably had the expectation that they could make a choice whether to vote absentee or vote early on the one hand or do the traditional thing of going to their precinct on election day. That second oh. choice- oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just to finish up, I know this is lengthy. That second no, choice please, was taken ahead. away from them as, as a health order. And so the Secretary of State had the, had to deal with the electoral consequence of what to do about an election, which would, as it stood, violate the federal constitution because half the voters got to vote and the other portion did not. So, so in light of that, um, just in thinking about um, how states can learn from this, um, is there, was there any other concerns about what the um, Ohio officials did with respect to how they handled this situation, right? I, I think that the, the risk to voters is, um, is, is pretty clear just in the sense of, I, I think our listeners understand the risk of disenfranchisement, right? The fact that people who have planned to vote today in person won't be able to do that. Um, and there's a question about what that looks like going forward. Um, but um, can you talk a little bit about Ohio law and whether Ohio law authorized the governor to, or I'm sorry, the, the chief health officer to um, do what she did in this context? And um, if so, why are, you know, some election law scholars crying foul? Yeah, so that those are great questions. And, and I'm not a health law expert by any means. And I'll, I'll preface it that I, I agree wholeheartedly with the point that I think Michael will make about the fact that Ohio's statutory rules were deficient in advance 
and, and, and Ohio, like many states, didn't have the right kind of statutory infrastructure to begin with to deal with that situation. But, you know, the officials yesterday had to deal with the reality as it existed, not the world that they would have wanted. I, I don't, I have not heard any strong argument or, or even much of an argument at all that it's a matter of health law that the health director lacked the authority to close the polls. As a public health emergency, she was entitled to protect the health in that way. So the, okay. then the question is about election law. I think it is also true that there is no specific statutory provision that would have authorized the Secretary of State or the governor or anybody else uh, to just change the date for the primary. So there was a gap in the statutory law on the election side on that point. But I don't think that ends the analysis either under Ohio statutory law or federal constitutional law for these reasons. First, under Ohio election law, the Secretary of State has very broad authority to issue directives, both permanent and temporary directives, uh, to guide local election officials on how to conduct the elections. This is um, Title 35 of the Ohio Code, and it's routinely used uh, on a regular basis, both you know, way ahead of time and then in the moment. Uh, and so the Secretary of State was exercising that statutory authority in the aftermath of the health order from Dr. Acton. And I think there was that statutory authority to issue some sort of directive. And in fact, I think it would have been irresponsible under Ohio law for the Secretary of State to fail to issue a, a directive. As chief elections officer, he was obligated to, to lead the election as best he could, given the order to cold, um, close the polls that came on the health side. So then the second, that leads to my second point. Um, you know, the federal law, the federal constitution is the supreme law of the land. And so the Secretary of State, in exercising that statutory authority to issue directives yesterday, is bound by federal constitutional law, including one person, one vote, equal voting rights principles. Had he simply left things where they stood, there would have been a federal constitutional violation. So regardless of what Ohio statutes might have specifically said or not about changing dates, he had to remedy a federal constitutional violation by the fact that many Ohio voters had voted and others were being denied the right to go to the polls today. And therefore it was incumbent upon him and appropriate for him to issue a directive to do the best he could in good faith to try to solve that federal constitutional problem. That's where I think things stand. Okay, let me bring Michael in so that he can offer his thoughts about um, the actions of Ohio officials. Uh, Michael, so, so what is your take on um, how Ohio officials responded to um, the coronavirus and, and the threat of spread and had they had in-person voting today at the polls? Um, I think it's helpful, as Ned did, to separate the actions from the director of the health department from those of the secretary of state, right? On the mm -hmm. one hand, you had the initial order declaring that there would not be in-person voting today from the health department, and then the secretary of state separately issued the remedial order specifying that he was going to hold a, a replacement a day of in-person voting in June 2nd, uh, and that absentee voting would continue until then. 
I'm largely in agreement with Ned in, in, in terms of I also lack a background in public health. And so, <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm certainly willing to, to accept the presumption that the, the director of the public health department can shut down places where people would be congregating in public based on a public health crisis in order to, to, to prevent the spread of, uh, of an infectious disease. I guess, I, and oh, at the end of the day, right, when you're, when you're talking about a disease that has shut down the Las Vegas Strip, that has shut down Disney World, where you, you have restaurants, bars, sporting events throughout the nation, schools throughout the nation being closed, it certainly seems like a, a, a reasonable exercise of, of judgment and discretion. I, I only have a few considerations that I that would potentially weigh against it, which isn't which again is just to suggest that these are things that I think need to be taken into account rather than rather than uh, suggesting that at the end of the day this was this was the wrong thing. The, the most basic thing as a matter of statutory interpretation is that we right Ohio has a, a thorough election code. The election code right not only regulates elections in general, but it contains various provisions that deal specifically with election emergencies. And so to use a, a, a completely independent grant of statutory authority from well outside the election code and to stretch and to apply it in this very unique, very distinct circumstance, I think just raises, raises questions in terms of can you use that authority to, to circumvent and effectively overrule the, the limitations that the, that the election code Can you clarify how it's a stretch? Forth. Because um, you said it would be a stretch to rely on an independent grant of authority. How is it a stretch? Can you clarify for our listeners? Well, certainly. So, so the 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 election code contains right, certain provisions. The governor is allowed to postpone elections in in, in case of a va- invasion. If certain polling places become inaccessible, those those polling places can 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 be moved. Uh, there there are there are provisions dealing with the provisional ballots. If there are delays out at polling places, the election officials can hold them open so that anyone who's online as of the time they were scheduled to close can still get to vote even after closing time. So given that the election code cre- contains all of these provisions, and again, as as Ned as Ned points out, I wholeheartedly agree with him. I, I, I don't think the election code was sufficient to deal with to deal with an emergency like this. But given that the legislature has taken steps to empower election officials to deal with emergencies, to go to an entirely different part of the Ohio code and to stretch to apply that authority in a way that effectively has empowers executive officials to delay and postpone elections when the legislature didn't give them that authority directly, at least raises an initial legal question worth considering. Um, so, uh, Ned, before I bring you in, I want you to consider Michael's comments in light of something that happened in Florida. Um, so, a federal court in Florida rejected an attempt to alter today's primary in Florida, finding that, quote, a national health care emergency is not a basis to cancel an election, end quote. Right. So even though you both sort of agree and concede you are not healthcare experts by any means and seem to think that there's some grounds here, um, those arguments are not necessarily swaying federal courts. And so um, that combined with the ambiguity in, in state election statutes might create a situation where you know, governors and state health officials might not be able to delay. Um, so I, I invite your thoughts in light of um, 
and in light of those thoughts. Yeah, so thanks for bringing the federal, uh, it was a federal court in Florida that, that denied a mm-hmm. ruling. I mean, I'd be interested in, in seeing that and seeing who the plaintiffs are and, and so forth. But I, I, I guess, I think, you know, I, I mean, health officials have the responsibility for public health. I mean, it's a separate, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to serve as state solicitor of the state of Ohio. This was 20 years ago. So and I was in the Ohio Attorney General's office. And so, you know, we dealt with election cases. We didn't deal with coronavirus. So I can't, I don't have exact experience, but I can imagine advising the governor, the secretary of state, public health officials, you know, all parts of Ohio government on what Ohio law is. And, and it seems to me that it, that, if there is a genuine acute public health emergency, you know, the election law is, is one part of the law. It's not the only part of the law. And I, and I think, you know, I think the Ohio officials are, are doing their best to preserve two things. And so far, I think they're actually doing a pretty good job. It's messy and chaotic, but they are saying they have got to make a health decision to try to protect as many lives as possible given this horrific virus. And we know this virus kills and we know this virus swamps emergency rooms. And so the idea that uh, anyone on any part of government should ignore that, I think would be irresponsible. You know, maybe a federal judge doesn't feel like they have power to issue a federal decree, but that doesn't end the matter for what Florida officials should do. And I certainly hope that no Floridians die as a result of the election going forward today. I hope that hospital beds in Florida are adequate in supply and that the election wasn't caused for, you know, thousands of people dying. What the judgment of Ohio officials was, let's save lives today and next week and the following week. And we can save votes afterwards. We're not gonna lose votes. We're not gonna lose democracy. We're not gonna lose the election. But there's a way to do this election consistent with public health. So let's do public health first as much as we can. We're going to lose some lives, unfortunately, but let's lose as few as possible. And then let's save the election. We're not going to lose the election at all. And and we can still have a valid primary, just not on the same schedule. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect but we can have both democracy and maximum public health. And that's how they approached it. And that seems to me good governance. I know the statutory rules were not great, but I think they acted as best they could under the circumstances. I do think it raises interesting questions about planning for November, right? We can learn from this. Like other states can learn from Ohio and, and sort of thinking about how to tackle this issue of um, how do you vote in a time of emergencies? Um, so, so I want to shift a little bit to thinking about barriers to online voter registration, um, universal vote by mail, things that we should be thinking about as we prepare for November. Um, so, Michael, um, any thoughts about um, the capacity of states to shift over to um, uh, maybe expanding online voter registration um, and allowing no excuse uh, mail-in ballots, uh, Congress's willingness to fund it, right? So, so these are all things that we should probably be thinking about. Um, any thoughts? Sure, absolutely. And I mean, again, I think I think that there's two there's two levels at which to think about this. It's what are what should states' ordinary base election laws be, and then what should their emergency election laws be? And I think right, you can you can have policy debates over you know what what your base election law should be. 
at a minimum, and I think the, the Ohio situation absolutely demonstrates the fact that whatever a state's ordinary election laws, you have to have a comprehensive, well-thought-out election emergency statute that tries to anticipate various types of contingencies, that tries to anticipate threats to different stages of the election process. Everything from deadlines for filing candidate petitions to get on the ballot, deadlines for voter registration for jurisdictions that, that require advanced voter registration for elections, uh, deadlines and the requirements for requesting absentee ballots, for casting absentee ballots, Everything, everything involves trade-offs, right? The more you shift to absentee ballots, voting by mail, on the one hand, you avoid the, the, the potential types of problems that could arise from people congregating together in the face of a public health crisis. On the other hand, you're, you're increasing the likelihood of votes getting rejected. Either people are in, don't correctly fill out the ballots, they're, they're, there's a signature match issue, they don't use the security envelope, the way they physically fill them out winds up being incorrect so that the machine rejects them and, and it, it, they, they're not accepted as valid votes. So there are trade-offs in terms of this improving things at one step of the process and then potentially having lower percentages or lower numbers of successfully counted votes on the on the back end. But to the extent that, that contingency plans are created in advance, that statutory authority is in place so that proper election officials, whether that be the governor, the secretary of state, for states that have a state board of elections, have discretion and authority under certain sorts of circumstances the statute lays out here are steps you can take, here are steps that you can't take. That is far better than either the type of situation in Ohio where to a certain extent, I would suggest the, the state executive officials created a fait accompli that they're presenting the legislature and the courts now with a canceled election and putting them in a position where they have to provide, uh, they have to provide a, a remedy on the back end. They're going to have to authorize a, a later day of in-person voting. The more these decisions of ongoing election where you're changing the rules for the election midstream, not in the middle of an emergency where you don't necessarily have the opportunity to, to, to carefully think through and weigh, and weigh the various considerations, getting that election emergency statute infrastructure in place in advance is critical. It's one of the biggest advantages, if you want to use that word that we have, that the November election still is far off enough where, at least in some states, to the, to the extent their laws need to be amended, they can be. But for, for e even many states that, that currently do have robust, uh, robust schemes, fully implementing those powers, fully taking advantage of them, is something else that they need to be looking at. So there, most jurisdictions will allow, for example, election officials to go to nursing homes to go to a place to go to um, assisted living facilities so that voters who would be at greater risk of contract potentially contracting coronavirus if they're going out to vote in person at polling places taking advantage of those types of provisions making sure that they have enough paper ballots if they're having a disproportionately large number of voters taking advantage of the opportunity to vote absentee right usually you see between a quarter and a third of votes being cast absentee they need to be prepared for two and potentially even three times as 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 high of a proportion of votes being being cast by by mail being cast remotely so 
not only it's not just a matter of changing laws, but also being fully aware of the range of authorities currently in place to facilitate different opportunities for voting and making sure the resources and the infrastructure are in place so that they are able to carry out elections under various types of circumstances that they might be facing this November. Thank you for that. And let me take your comments someplace where you don't want them to go. Um, so <laughs> in my mind, why are we, so, so the interesting thing about being in an emergency situation where we have to think about elections and the stress that is put in our election system is, is that it forces us to be creative and novel and, and sort of trying to prepare ourselves for a situation that is in many ways unprecedented. But, you know, I want to, I want to invite us to think about whether online voter registration and universal vote by mail should be the base election law standard as opposed to just an emergency situation. I know that present circumstances probably um, prevent that from happening, but I do want to just, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, invite people to think more broadly, right? Why shouldn't the standard be online voter registration? Why shouldn't the standard be universal vote by mail for every election? Because it's easier. Um, it, more people will be able to participate. Uh, and it has the benefit of preparing us for situations like the current situation. And so um, I just, you know, I know some people will resist that. And I, and I know, Michael, that was not your point. <laughs> but I do think coronavirus has forced us to revisit some of the procedures that we have in place. Because at the very least, we, we now know that state statutes are probably inadequate to deal with the type of situation that we're currently encountering. So because we have to make those fixes, why not think about other ways in which we could make permanent changes that, that, that might work, that might actually improve efficiency, that may bring more to democracy? Uh, do you want me to try to tackle that, Fernita, or, or kick that one to my Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I think we got to we got to get through this year, and then we can think about uh, you know what voting looks like for the future. I, I do think some states will want to use the Oregon model of all vote by mail, or people in Oregon really like it. Other states are adopting it. I'm not sure in a nation as as with as much variety as as we have in America that that's a good system for every state. Political cultures are different in in different states, and and I think, unfortunately, the candor requires us to say that where you see absent, where you see fraud and actual fraud in elections, it's with mailed ballots. You know, Miami had a mayor's race in 1997 that had to be essentially voided because of widespread absentee ballot fraud of the kind that then occurred in 2018 in North Carolina, this, these ballot harvesting operations. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think a nationwide uh, rule of everybody votes by mail and only by mail would, would probably not make sense even after we get through this year. But we can have that debate after this year. I think the critical thing for this year is maximizing you know, voter empowerment in this time of crisis. And I think that does mean we have to ramp up. I think Michael was absolutely correct. We have to increase capacity particularly in those states that are not as familiar with vote by mail, not because that's a permanent solution, but that because that's going to be a necessity, at least as a contingency plan for November. And so they need money and they need um, printers and they need just to know how to do absentee voting more than they've done. And, and I think that should be the focus of attention between now and November. 
Oh, I don't. So, so here's the thing. I just believe that we can walk and chew gum, right? So I think that now is the time to have the conversation in part because when things get back to normal, we will not have the conversation, right? So I don't think that, you know, if we, if we put it off because we're saying, well, we just have to focus on this one thing, then it just means that we'll never really have the conversation that we need to have as a polity. Um, this, the, my second response would be that, um, yes, it, it is completely true that it's more likely to, that there'll be fraud in the context of um, voting almost extensively by mail than you see in person, but it still won't, won't, won't be at the levels that after uh, fraud as a, a, as a means of requiring people to produce an ID. It's still not extensive, right? It's not a systemic problem. Um, occasionally, you do have elections where it matters. I'm, I'm not disputing that. But then we can have a conversation about safety mechanisms that we can put in place to try to prevent that. Um, but I do think that if we put off the conversation, it will preclude having the conversation altogether. And the reality is that the current system is a system in which you see massive disenfranchisement. And so for me, it's a value question, right? It's, it's a question of, are we willing to accept massive disenfranchisement of people who should be allowed to vote? Or are we willing to accept that, hey, we have a, a, an alternative that may involve uh, an, a slight increase in voter fraud, but maybe we can put mechanisms in place to try to prevent that, right? So, so for me, it just depends on, um, on how you want to frame it. But I, I do think you have to take advantage of the situation where we are having these meaningful conversations about voter registration online and universal vote by mail as, as options and, and, and sort of, you know, walk through the door and say, hey, maybe this is something that states can consider going forward. I recognize that it won't work for every state, you know, federalism. Uh, but I do think that a lot of the objections that you will see will be based in partisanship as opposed to any serious concerns about having universal vote by mail. So I'm glad that you're raising this. And, and the great thing about our podcast is we can attend to these issues, not just today, but as we go forward mm -hmm. into the future. Um, I think it's inevitable that people are going to try to talk about, you know, the, the ideal system for next time, as well as we deal with the crisis this time. So I think you're going to get your wish mm -hmm. that that policy conversation is going to be part of the discussion. But I also am, you know, I'm, I worry that, that as much as I'd like to think we can do two things at one, once, I think we do have to prioritize the present. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, if you look at the trajectory of changing American election law from 2000 over the last 20 years into the future, I, my guess is that we're going to increase reliance on vote, vote by mail, not just temporarily this year, but into the future. Whether we get all the way to a national organ system, I'm more doubtful of, but I think, you know, I think the, the trajectory is moving to, towards that. Um, last point before we move on, I, Again, you and I have worried about disenfranchisement of various forms. Uh, you know, again, I, I want us to distinguish what we mean by massive disenfranchisement in what, what context. And again, I think the immediate concern for this year is that we don't have massive disenfranchisement caused by the virus and, or any other reason, but the virus is putting extra pressure on our system. And so we do have to be attentive to how, to, how can we maximize voter participation, you know, in the context of, of, of the virus and what we've got between now and November. So I would focus on that and make sure we do that no matter what. Agreed, agreed. But, you know, I, I just feel like part of my job is to also beat the drum, you know, like, yes, virus, but, you know, we still have people who have felony convictions in Florida who don't know if they can vote or not. 
right? Because they don't understand how the new statute re regarding fines and fees actually applies to them, right? So, you know, there are issues of voter education, there are issues of access to the ballot. And so I just, yes, virus, but let me beat the, the drum on these other things as well. Um, so, so that being said, you know, so we, we, we have a sense of how states can, can think about November in light of everything that's going on in Ohio and Louisiana and Kentucky, Maryland, Georgia, postponing and, you know, just trying to sort of deal with the crisis on a, the ground with the coronavirus. Uh, but I do think this has also raised questions about whether or not the president could similarly delay the November election, right? If he tries to do so for, you know, public health reasons. And so um, I invite uh, either you or, or, or Michael to explain for our listeners why the, or if, if the president has that authority. So. Michael, you want to take, jump in? And sure. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying that we often think of presidential, a presidential election as a single nationwide event, when in fact it's really a series of 51 separate independent state-based events. And so the, the reason that the president can't unilaterally delay the election or suspend the election is that he, he simply lacks that authority. It's not, it, pre, even presidential elections are not run by the federal government. They are not primarily governed by federal law. They're, they're, an, an, they're a state level issue. And so as we saw in Ohio, it's, it's ultimately state level officials who are responsible for conducting and overseeing the elections. If a decision were made to postpone or delay the, a presidential election, it would be a state level decision. And the, there are also federal law and federal constitutional constraints on the power of states to, to delay federal elections for various reasons. There's a federal statute that establishes the presidential election day. There's a federal law that specifies the date on which presidential electors must cast their electoral votes. The constitution requires that day to be the same for all electors across the country. So even if a particular jurisdiction were trying to delay its election, that would unavoidably generate externalities that would affect the rest of the electoral college. There's yet another statutory deadline by which Congress must convene in joint session to gather together to count the electoral votes. And of course, the ultimate constitutional cutoff is the end of the president's term. That no matter, no matter what happens, whether or not a, the, the, the presidential election is completed, the president's term ends on January 20th. And if for whatever reason, a new president has not been, and presumably a new vice president for that matter, have not been successfully appointed and the election has yet to be fully resolved, those positions would be vacant. And under the Presidential Successor, uh, Succession Act, it would be whoever the incoming Speaker of the House is who would then serve as acting president until until the election were, were sorted out. So you know, one one of the reasons why the, 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 the actions in Ohio perhaps raise somewhat less concerns than at the general election is precisely because this is a primary and that additional overlay of federal law and ultimately U.S. constitutional constraints don't, don't immediately apply here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I thought Michael gave a great summary of, of the relevant federal rules and, uh, and there's just... Uh, Congress sets the dates, as he said, and they're the constitutional constraints. So, so what happened in, in Ohio yesterday is not automatic precedent by any means for how to think about what might happen in, in November. 
And of course, there was an election in 1864, right? <laughs> we were yes, the thank you, Anita, right? I mean, we, wars. we um, um, and, and that's certainly a worse situation than the one we currently find ourselves in. Right. I, I think that's a very important point for Anita that, you know, America held a, a presidential election in 1864 in the midst of a civil war. There, it, was, it was not canceled. It was not delayed. The Constitution doesn't permit that. And, and the Republic went on. The Republic uh, went on. Yeah, and uh, and also World War II. You know, in 1944, we're in the midst of World War II, and and we had another presidential election. So maybe so everything that's going on right now with the postponement of the primaries, and um, you know, the fact that voters may be feeling a sense of I don't want to say doom, but you know, just it's just it's. It's unprecedented in, in some ways the things that are happening. You know, we may see possible disenfranchisement. There's definitely uh, situations in which voters may be confused about, you know, election law, the dates um, and, and what they're supposed to do. Um, but one thing I think I want to reiterate is that that doesn't necessarily mean that November will occur like that. It is incredibly likely and, and, and I hope that I'm right about this, that November will happen like every other November every four years, right? Would you guys say that for our listeners, that they should not, one takeaway from what is happening right now with the primaries is that it does not necessarily mean that no, the, the, the presidential and congressional elections and other elections happening in November will necessarily be outside of our norm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I am very confident that we will complete our November elections, and we will have valid presidential election, valid congressional elections, as, as we just said, the republic will endure, democracy will endure. Um, some circumstances may need to be a little bit different. Again, more voting by mail than maybe people are accustomed to. But, but, but bottom, the bottom line issue, for me at any rate, is do we have voter sovereignty? Does, does the electorate get to choose our leaders? You know, our national DNA, you know, it starts with the Declaration of Independence where, you know, we're, the Declaration talks about government deriving its just powers from the consent of the government. So we have government in America because we have elections. And in order to have government go forward, we have to have the elections go forward. And I think that will happen. And, um, and that's, again, that's the commitment we made in the civil, time of the Civil War. You know, at, at the Gettysburg Address, you know, Lincoln talked about, you know, preserving government of, by, and for the people so it doesn't perish. Again, our national project is to do that. And if, if I can identify a sort of third piece of our great national trilogy, it's... Um, King's address in, in Washington, where he talks about those as the promissory notes that, uh, you know, who America had to make good on. And as you pointed out in our very first podcast episode, Fernita, it was the Civil Rights Act in 1965 that made good on those promissory notes. So when you put together the Declaration and the Gettysburg Address and the Voting Rights Act and King's speech, you get this national commitment to what we do, which is we run elections in order to have valid government. We can do that this year, despite the stresses. I'm confident that we will do it. It may look a little bit different this year, 
the, this primary process is just one component of that. As long as you know, we get nominees that get in the summer conventions that get put on the ballot, that's what the nomination process was for. The fact that some of these primaries had to be delayed doesn't deny the legitimacy of these nominations. So I'm not seeing anything that causes us to believe that democracy is failing. It's being tested, but it is not failing. And I don't think it will fail. So I hope our listeners can take some comfort in that optimism. Yes, and, and this California girl hopes that your states will join us in voting by mail because <laughs> I vote by mail. So, <laughs> so I don't anticipate things will be that different for uh, people who live here. But it certainly may look different in other states. But I think your, your, your general point is well taken. I think that our democracy will hold. And, and, you know, and I hope that we come out of this better for it, you know, just in terms of our election administration procedures. I do think that this is an opportunity for us to improve ourselves across the board. Michael, any, any final thoughts? No, I, I totally share Ned's sentiments. And the, the other thing I would point out along those lines, I would, I would, re, I would refer listeners to Ned's book. If you, if you actually read through the history of American elections and you see some of the problems that we've had <laughs> at, in, in American elections, everything from militia showing up to polling places, it would be headed by the, the, the captain being the brother of one of the candidates running to check how people were voting, to having multiple congressional elections being held in the same year, and then Congress having to try to figure out which was the valid one and which one wasn't. We have faced so many various unexpected, even shocking types of obstacles to the, the, fun, the smooth functioning of the democratic process and, and we've overcome. And if anything, you can, you can almost think of the, the, the primaries at least from the perspective of election officials, as something of a dress rehearsal for the general elections. And so looking at this as a run through for seeing, here are the stress points, here are the weak spots, here's where we were just randomly making stuff up. It gives us an opportunity to see in advance where the system in, in real time, or real living, living evidence of how the system needs to be improved and hopefully election officials take advantage and state legislatures take advantage of this opportunity to make the necessary improvements, develop the necessary plans, put the necessary infrastructure and resources in place to make the November election not necessarily perfect because there's no such thing as a perfect election, but as smooth as possible. I love that. We're in the dress rehearsal. Don't fret, right? <laughs> and buy ballot battles. <laughs> hey, Fernita, can I just add one more thing? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and, and hopefully this is also a positive note, and, and I very much appreciate those words, Michael. Um, and as I've been thinking about what happened in Ohio yesterday and also the, around the country with the delays of the primaries, here's something that I've had in mind. It, it, it's, it's trying to distinguish two different ways that public officials might change voting rules. And I think we should be very um, mindful that there's a big difference between these two different approaches. Approach one would be very bad. And that would be is if public officials were manipulating or distorting the voting rules for their own partisan advantage or incumbency advantage as a power grab, because that would be abusive. And that would be trying to take 
the power away from the voters themselves. It would be inconsistent with that national DNA that we were talking about. And so I think it's incumbent upon any of us as election law scholars that if we see that kind of inappropriate manipulation of the process that we call it out and say it's a, it's a wrongful power grab. But by contrast, the opposite can also be true. And the opposite is when public officials in good faith with sincerity are trying their best there they can in difficult circumstances to preserve voting rights, to preserve the empowerment of the electorate to make their choices. It's a totally different attitude and a totally different mindset. And when we see that, we all call that out and applaud it because it's not a power grab. It's trying to do the right thing. And again, all we can do is observe what we observe. But what I've observed, at least in Ohio yesterday, was the right sort of behavior and the right sort of attitude, not the wrong behavior and the wrong attitude. It was, you know, the governor himself said, we're doing this to preserve rights, to preserve the Constitution. And so, you know, I think um, we should keep that in mind. We should always be vigilant and to make sure we don't have the wrong thing happen, but we should be able to praise when the right sort of thing happens as well. Oh, I, I agree completely. And I think that if you look at the actions of uh, many governors and state officials just throughout the, the course of everything that's been going on, they have really risen to the occasion in a way that, you know, is part of our DNA as well. Um, now, I, I do have a small point of disagreement, and this is why I love our podcast, because I, I think you're absolutely right that you have to, uh, you know, in the first scenario, we should call it out when election officials are taking advantage of situations for partisan political gain, and that we, we have to applaud them when they don't. But I think the first scenario is inevitable. Um, there's just, I just, given the, the nature of our system and the, the, the polarization that we currently live in, I think that we should expect that there will be situations in which officials will take advantage of the situation for partisan political gain, um, because it's just, it's the nature of our politics. And so, um, I, I think you're absolutely right, but maybe I just want to reamplify your point, right? That is why it's even more important to call it out. But I do think that we should sort of expect it to happen, happen just given the nature of our, our, our politics currently. Well, it's, I don't even well, go ahead, Michael. I, I was just going to say, I don't even necessarily know that we will often be in a position to objectively classify a particular decision as falling into one bucket or another, right? To the, to the, ex to the extent that election officials in responding to an emergency and either modifying the rules governing an election, potentially postponing an election, to the extent that either is expected to have or winds up having a beneficial effect for members of members of their party or members of the, 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 the governor's party, even if those steps are taken in good faith and even if objectively they there there are there are legitimate reasons to support them, that could wind up looking like partisan manipulation, especially if there were other potential alternatives. So I don't I don't necessarily know at the end of the day, right, with, particularly without the ability to, 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 to sort of look into someone's soul and see, you know, what, what, what was truly motivating them. I'm, you know, I'm not entirely confident that at least across a, a broad swath of circumstances, we would be able to rely on that, which is precisely why I think one good feature of election emergency statutes or failing that, at least contingency plans, is to try to cabin discretion that rather than leaving it to voters to figure out good faith, bad faith, 
to the extent the rules can be, or the principles at a minimum, can be established in advance and officials can point to these principles as cabining their discretion, guiding their discretion, rather than them just being forced from whole cloth to figure out an appropriate response. I think that can, that can do a lot to not only limit, can't eliminate it, but limit the opportunities for partisan manipulation while also bolstering public confidence in the, in the legitimacy of the process. Yeah, I don't. So to be clear, I, I, I agree that there, there will often be times where it's difficult to make a distinction between actions taken for partisan reasons and actions taken with good faith. Um, but in my mind, that's always true. Right. Especially especially when we're talking about election administration and administrators have a menu of options that they can choose from. Uh, but it still happens that in situations in certain situations, we can tell when an official is acting in, in bad faith. Um, and so I imagine that even in this situation, that those situations will still come up where um, we can tell that a, a, a election official has overstepped in a way that they shouldn't. Have, right. Um, I'm just hoping and, and really consistent with your point, Michael, that it's the exception as opposed to the rule. Right. That in most situations, election officials will be acting in good faith and they will adopt rules that ensure that voters are able to exercise their right to vote. Um, but I do think it will be malpractice on my part to, to not beat the drum and say that there will be election officials who will take advantage of the situation for partisan gain. And sometimes we will be able to tell. Yeah, and I, and I, I agree with both of you. I think, I, I think it, Michael says, we wanna have clear rules in advance as much as possible you know, for the, the original Madisonian reason that humans are not angels and, the, and the, there's a limited amount of public virtue in our system. On the other hand, I think it's also true that our system can't exist without some degree of virtue. That was part of Madison's views. And, uh, and, we, and when, when they do act appropriately with virtue, we should note that, again, it's what we observe, but I do think we can sometimes observe politicians doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing, and we should be grateful for that when it happens. Yes. Um, so I think that we'll stop our conversation here. Um, we've, given, we've given our listeners quite a bit to, to think about, and, and hopefully we've been helpful as we um, sort of deal with this unprecedented stress on our election system and, 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 and sort of reassuring people that, you know, that our democracy has been through complications and changes and difficulties before that we've emerged from stronger. And, um, and hopefully this is also a situation in which our, our, our system of elections will come through uh, better than it was before. And so uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Morley, for coming thank on you. and talking to us today. It was a great, great conversation. Great chatting with you guys. Yeah, thank you. That was, that was great. And, and indeed, Fernita, thank, thank you. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. I want both of you guys to stay healthy, stay well. And, uh, and yes. I look, um, stay healthy, stay well, yes. wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs>